Hey everybody, welcome to the Fearlessly Authentic Podcast, episodes aimed at presenting authentic truth in a fearlessly practical way. I'm Jerry Wilkoak and I'll be your host today. In this episode, we're going to look at part two of Joseph's origin story. In part one, we looked at the characteristics in Joseph's dysfunctional family and how that might have had an effect on his character. In today's episode, we're going to look at the decisions that Joseph made to overcome that dysfunction. Boy, I'm glad that you're with us today. Here's part two. move on to chapter 29 and verse 21 and this is where he goes to Laban his mom's brother to get a wife and he checks out this this very fine young lady named Rachel he's like she's the one she's the one and he goes over to Laban says Rachel is the one and 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 Laban's like yeah 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 Uh, let me think Uh, you like Rachel okay so here's the deal you work for me for seven years, she's yours. He's like, done, done, done. But what happens is that when wedding time comes, <laughs> dad sends the older daughter in, Leah. And Jacob actually marries Leah, but he's too overwhelmed with passion and alcohol to notice that this isn't Rachel. He's deceived himself. Oh, well, there's karma. And so now he has to work another seven years for Rachel, I call this the lesson of two wives too many. And, and the lesson is, Jacob thought happiness was found in a pretty face. He never took time to check out Rachel's character, her lack of godliness. You see, Rachel's lack of godliness is going to cost him in the end. We, we look at the wives of Isaac and Jacob and think, oh, these are, even Isaac and Jacob are not great patriarchs. And the beauty about the Bible is that God shows both sides of someone's life and said, you still can be blessed in spite of yourself. Now, we don't have time to really deal with it this morning, but in the next couple chapters, we have what I call the crazy competition to have kids. Rachel is dying to have kids, but Leah is the one who's pumping out kids like they're no... Four kids to Rachel. Four to zip. Four to zip. This is biblical math that you learn in Bible college. This is real math, okay? Four to nothing, okay? She has Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. So Rachel comes up with this sweet idea. Hey, you know I want kids, right? Yeah, I know you want kids. Okay, so I got this handmaid named Bilhah. Yeah, that's, that's your servant. Yeah, well, tonight you're staying in her tent. Well, I've already got two. Uh, 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 uh. Jacob, you do what I say. You love me? Yeah. Go stay in her. Now, where was Jacob's leadership at that point? To look at Rachel and say, Woman, are you nuts? I already got this competition between you and your sister. There was such deception going on. Now you want me to go to your handmaid's tent and you want me to have children for you through her? Now, I know culturally it was a little more acceptable, but even he should have known this isn't God's plan. This isn't the way God works. But yet, nevertheless, two kids come. Gad and Asher. Well, not to be outdone. Or, I mean, Dan and Naphtali come from her. Not to be outdone. Leah, who Jacob is now not spending any time with, if you know what I'm talking about. It's not that she can't have kids. He's just like, okay, uh, we're done. You know? 
she convinces him to go into the tent of her handmaid, Zilpah, and have kids with her. Because not only were they not together, but she was struggling a little bit at that time. And so she has, uh, she has Gad and Asher. So now he's got women from four, or children from four women. Now, if that isn't a dysfunctional family, I don't know what. Not to mention the crazy, if you know the story, the crazy Mandrake story where Leah comes with these mandrakes. We're not even sure exactly what they are, but some kind of sweet, delectable. And Rachel sees that she has some mandrakes, and she comes over to Leah and says, Leah, what? I want some of your mandrakes. I'm not going to get any of my mandrakes. I'll make you a deal. What, what, what's the deal? Jake will come to your tent tonight if you give me the mandrakes. And Leah's like, all right, here's the mandrakes. Jacob comes over there. She has more kids. Issachar, Zebulun, Dinah, craziness. What is, what, what is he learning from this crazy competition? What is Jacob gleaning from this? This is what he's seeing. My identity is in whatever I define that gives me worth. My identity is in what I determine gives me worth. My identity is in my kids. My identity is my ability to give, give my uh, husband the kids he wants. My identity is in what I determine what I'm worth. Now, remember these, these are lessons that are piling up in Jacob and are going to be filtered down to Joseph. In Genesis 31, he meets with, uh, or he, dis, he departs Laban in deceit. And the lesson he learns there is I must lie in deceit to get what I want. Genesis 32, he meets with God in that, that little wrestling match. Gets a name change. What's the lesson learned? Here's a positive lesson. God has a purpose for my life. You're no longer Jacob. I love, I love what he says to him. God, God the one who is, is talking to him. In Genesis 32, oh, around verse 37 or 27, he says, And he said to him, What is thy name? Now, now correct me here. Did God know Jacob's name? Okay, did God like, like have a, a moment? What's his name? What's his name? What's his name? You know? Not with God. So what's the purpose of him asking his name? He's saying, identify who you are. Come to grips with who you are, Jacob. Who are you? You're a deceiver. You're a heel catcher. And your whole life up to this point has been nothing but living up to your name. But I got a plan for you. When I have control of your life, I change your name. And I'm going to call you Israel. I'm going to call you Israel. I'm going to change your name. You're going to fulfill my promise. I'm going to use you, Jacob. I'm going to use you. God has a purpose for his life. Good lesson there. One of the few. In, in Genesis 33, he has this meeting with Esau again. Now remember, him and Esau haven't met since he took off. Esau got the blessing stolen. And he swore the next time that he saw him, he would kill him. So here comes Esau with his army. Jacob sees him coming. And what does the wise, I got a purpose for you, Israel now do? He takes his two handmaids and their kids and puts them at the front of the battle. Then he takes Leah and her kids and puts them in the middle. And at this point, Joseph's born, so he takes Rachel and Joseph and puts them way in the back. Now, what is that communicating to the kids of Bilhah and Zilpah? I guess we're expendable. What about Leah? Well, I'm not as good as Rachel. Now, they knew it already, but how could you just tell it so much easier? What is the lesson learned? Some people are less important than others. Genesis 34, Dinah gets defiled. The, the man who she was with, according to Scripture, genuinely loves her, wants to make things right, 
He got a little ahead of the game, not, not, not saying it was right or anything, just he shows they even make a deal because Simeon and Levi go over there, right? And what do they do? They make a deal. They say, hey, look, 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 look. You guys aren't like us, but if all of your men get circumcised, then we will interchange and we'll trade and you can have our wives and we'll take your, or your, we can have our daughters, we'll take your daughters, we'll get together, we'll intermingle, it'll be awesome. But you guys got to be circumcised. We can't be with any circumcised people. And so they all agree to this, which is amazing that a whole town of grown men would all agree, yeah, I'll do it. Because <laughs> that's like total commitment. <laughs> On the third day, which by the way, is the day of the fever. It's the day when a person is most weak after being circumcised. Simeon and Levi come in and kill them all. Jacob's so embarrassed, he, te- he tells people, he's, he doesn't even say, guys, totally out of bounds. He's like, well, they're going to gather together and what is my name going to be and they're going to come and destroy us. We've got to get out of town. What does he learn? Deceit and deception works well to accomplish your goals. This time he sees it in his kids. In chapter 35, you have the birth of Benjamin, the second child from his one that he loves, Rachel, but she dies in childbirth. As she's dying, she says, I want him to be called Benanoi. But his father says, no, his name's going to be Benjamin. She wanted to be called the child of sorrow. He wants him to be called the child of strength. Rachel dies. Now, I want to direct your attention to this verse here because we're going to come back to this later on in our series. And I want you to look at verse 22 of chapter 35. Rachel just died. Jacob just buried Rachel. In verse 21, he journeyed and spread his tent beyond the tower of Edar. And it came to pass when Israel dwelt in that land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. And Israel heard it. Now, if this isn't major dysfunction, I don't know what is. His oldest son lays with the concubine that is his. When? As the man is grieving at his most. How much hatred could you have for your father than to do something that despicable to him when he's already at his most hurting point? This is a dysfunctional family. This is what Jacob has brought, and this is what Jacob is learning. This is what Joseph is viewing in these 17 years that he's watching this dysfunction going. And the lesson that is constantly being beamed into Joseph is you have to lie and deceit and you have to work your way. And people are, some people are favorites and some people are not. And that's just the way you do it. And if it doesn't happen your way, uh, then you make it happen your way. And you figure out a way to deceive someone to do it. And when people are hurting the most, you stick them in the back with a knife. This is the lessons that Joseph has been learning for 17 years. Oh, he heard the stories. He heard all kinds of things, but this is what his father was teaching with his life. So here's my question again. Do uncontrollable events in my past have to control my future decisions? If we look at the life of Jacob and his first ten sons, the answer to that question is absolutely. If we look up at the first ten sons of Jacob and we say, do the things in my past, my origin story, do they have to control my future? The answer is absolutely. You are bound to repeat the mistakes of your father because that's just the way it happens. That's just the way I am. Reuben sleeps with his father's concubine. Simeon and Levi murder innocent men for revenge. Judah wants to sell his brother for profit. All of them conspire against Joseph. They're all learning this lesson. They've all, they, all, they all give forth the fact that this is the lesson that they're learning, yet all heard the same Bible stories, all were exposed to the same conditions, all had access to the same God, yet faced with the difficulties of life, only Joseph chose to be different. 
Now, did the brothers have some serious issues to overcome? Sure they did. There was obvious favoritism toward Joseph. That's not easy to overcome. There was a lack of love from Jacob because he showed the favoritism to Joseph. That's not easy to, to deal with. There was the influence and the manipulation of their mothers that aren't even easy to record of them back and forth and using their kids as leverage to get what they want. And there was the temptation of the flesh that is present in all of us. Yet for Joseph, he was hated by his brothers. He was favored by his father. He was sold into slavery. There was the temptation of lust. He was wrongly confused. He was forgotten in prison. He spent the best years of his life in Egypt. He was separated from his father. So what did Joseph know and ultimately do that prevented his past from forming his future? What did he know and what did he do that, that prevented his past from influencing his future? How did he change his story with such a bad origin? Real quick, number one, he refused to allow his circumstances to identify him. Remember, we come to Joseph in chapter 37, 17 years of dealing with this kind of manipulation, 17 years of dealing with this favoritism. And it's not always easy to be the favorite kid when you see your brothers and sisters in pain because of the favoritism that your parent is showing to you. There was the lack of love that he saw that his father was showing he saw the influence and the manipulation of all of these women, including his own mom. So what did he know and what did he do? Well, he refused to allow his circumstances to identify himself. Look over at Genesis 39 for just this quick point. Now, all of the stories I'm going to talk about this morning, we're going to deal with in depth, but I do want to kind of do a broad stro uh, stroke of his life in the few minutes I have left here. Genesis 39 is the, is the chapter where Joseph is already sold into slavery. Potiphar has bought him. Things are going well. Chapter... 39 verse 2, and the Lord was with Joseph, and he was a prosperous man, and he was the house of a ma his master, the Egyptian, and his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hand. And notice this, Joseph found grace in his sight, and he served him, and he made him overseer over his house, and all that he had put into his hand. And it came to pass from the time that he had made him overseer in his house, and over all, the, all that he had, that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake, and the blessing of the Lord was upon all that he had in the house and in the field. Drop down to verse 21. This is where Joseph has already been accused of a crime that he didn't commit. He was put into prison. And we have the testimony here at the end of this chapter. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners that were in the prison. And whatsoever there they did, he was the doer of it. What did he know and ultimately do that prevented his past from forming his future? He refused to allow his circumstances to identify himself because he remembered that it was God who was with him. In every situation, God was with him. The Lord was with Joseph in chapter verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph in verse 21. What, what, did, what did he remember? He remembered that God was with him in these situations. That God was with him in these tough situations. That God was with him in these unbearable situations. That even though the whole world was against him and seemed to be conspiring to ruin his life, God was with him. And if God was with him, who shall be against him is what he would understand, is what we know from a New Testament verse. If God be with us, who can be against us? Who can separate me from the love of Christ, Paul says. And then he lists all these things. None of these things can separate me from the love that is in Jesus Christ. Nothing can separate me from the love that Jesus Christ gives to me. And the relationship that I have through my personal repentance and acceptance of his free gift of salvation. Nothing can separate me. What else did he know? He experienced prosperity and mercy from God in his situation. One could look at his situation and say, well, I'm just a slave. I'm a prisoner. And look at all the negative things. Except Joseph tended to look at the ways in which God was giving him mercy 
and prosperity, even in a situation he didn't want to be in, because he was not going to allow his circumstances to identify him. He wasn't going to take this and say, well, you know, if I, my parents would have done this, and if they would have done this, if, if my parents just would have put me in travel soccer, and, and my parents would have just given me more lessons, or if my parents would have been more cooler, or if my parents were younger, or if my parents were older, or if my parents had more money. If my parents would have been this, if my dad would have been a white collar, if my dad would have worked harder, if my dad would have spent more time with me, if my mom would have been crazy, if my mom would have been so strict, if my mom would have been so nice, all these things we want to blame on our parents. Psych wards are filled with people who are blaming their life on their parents. The only road that that leads you to is the loser road, the dependent road. Your parents don't have to define your future. And don't think that because you're 40, 50, or 60, that what your parents did to you still don't affect you because it, it affects you the rest of your life. But you have to learn to see the mercy and grace and the prosperity that God gives you in spite of your upbringing. You have to understand what the power of a changed life will do when you stop blaming everyone else for your poor decisions. You cannot allow, you cannot tolerate the, the past and other people's uncontrollable choices to affect your future. And, and, and somehow, that's your identity. And here's the thing. When you are in Christ, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. He is a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things are become new. My identity is not in where I was born. My identity is not the color of my skin. It's not the girth of my weight. It's not the height on the chart. It's not uh, the, the personality I have. My identity is in Christ. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I. But Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I am not bound by my past. And while it will influence me, and while I'll have to struggle in some places because there is, there is that influence, I don't have to allow it to define me, and I don't have the permission to use it as an excuse to sin. He did the best he could with what he was given and trusted the results to God. Second lesson that I think that he not only understood was that he chose to do right, even when it was much easier and, humanly speaking, justifiable to do wrong. Now, I'm not saying that it was justifiable for him to do wrong, but from a human standpoint, there would be a lot of people who would look at Joseph's life and would say, man, sleep with her. This guy bought you as a slave. You've been working your fingers to the... You're not even supposed to be here. No one knows this is an acceptable practice in Egypt, by the way, it was. This isn't like some big taboo. You can have a little fun. She can have a little fun. You can enjoy your time. You didn't want to be here in the first place. So we would, from a human standpoint, there'd be many people who would say, go ahead. What's the big deal? But notice, notice what Joseph said here, verses 7 through 9. And again, we're going to look at this in more detail when we get to this passage. came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph, and she said, lie with me. She wasn't looking for someone to just keep her warm at night, if you know what I mean. Here's the lesson he learned from verse 7. Why he chose to do right even when it was much easier and humanly speakable, justifiable to do wrong. He realized that every opportunity is not always a good opportunity. Remember that. Every opportunity that's thrown your way is not always a good opportunity. It's not always a godly opportunity. Verse 8. But he refused and said unto his master's wife, Behold, my master wanteth not what is with me in the house, and he hath committed all that he had to my hand. Now, this has superhero legend in, the, in what I'm about to say, so... Bear with me. Actually, Winston Churchill said this before Spider-Man, but here's my point. He realized that every, or he, real, he remembered that with great power comes great responsibility. With great power comes great responsibility. Luke chapter 12, verse 48 says, For unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall be much required. And to whom men have committed much, of him they will ask thee more. Why am I going to choose to do right? Because with great responsibility 
comes great power. And with great power comes great responsibility. Why else did he choose to do right? Look at verse 9. There is none greater in this house than I, neither he hath kept back anything from me but thee, because thou art his wife. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Here's the lesson he learned here. He reckoned that a moment of pleasure is not worth a lifetime of regret. How can I do this great wickedness and sin before my God? Joseph, how did you prevent your past from forming your future? He refused to allow his circumstances to identify him. He chose to do right even when it was much easier and justifiable to do wrong. And then lastly, look at verse chapter 45. I want to direct your attention to verse 2. At this point of the story, if you understand Joseph's story, if you're not, well, then you need to read up on it. But this is the time where Joseph's sort of been testing them to see if they're real. They had to come to him. He's been elevated to second in command. He has prevented uh, Egypt from uh, uh, being prey to the famine. For seven years, he kept a bunch of grain. And now these seven years of famine, he's dealing it out. And finally, Israel and his sons have to come ask for grain. So the sons come. And the story is that they come and Joseph recognizes who they are. And then he accuses them as being spies. You've got to keep one here. And Simeon is the one who's kept. And they go back. And when they go back, they find they've got double money in their thing. And they're wondering what's going to happen. And he says, in order to get Simeon, you've got to bring Benjamin back. And, and he gets over it. And Jacob's there. And Jacob's like, no way, Jose. Simeon can fend for himself. I'm not sending my Benjamin back. And Judah has to intercede, and Judah has to ask him, uh, convince him to send Benjamin, and so they all go back, and they send Benjamin back, and, and, then, and then they have this thing, this party, and then they all go back, and he hides a cup in Benjamin's sack, and he falsely arrests him to see if these guys have learned a lesson, and, 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 and Judah throws himself and says, let me be the one, and, and, and finally they come back, and, and Joseph's totally overwhelmed at this point. He sends everybody out of the room. Up to this point, he only spoke to them through an interpreter, speaking Egyptian. But he could understand what they were saying because he remembered the Hebrew. And then in verse 2, he wept aloud, and the Egyptians and the house of Pharaoh heard, this is, this is quite a cry. And Joseph said unto his brethren, I am Joseph. Doth my father yet live? And his brethren could not answer, for they were troubled at his presence. Joseph said unto his brethren, come near to me. They're like, no, nah, I like my neck right where it is. And, and the, the, the Hebrew, remember Hebrew is a very picturesque language. When he says, come near to me, he's like, Come near to me intimately. I want to embrace you. He says, come near to me, I pray you. And they came near, and he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into slavery. Now, therefore, be not grieved nor angry with yourselves that ye sold me hither, for God did send me before you to preserve life. For these two years hath the famine been in the land, and yet there are five years in which there shall neither be earring nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve you a posterity in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now... It was not you that sent me hither, but God. And he hath made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. What's my point? Joseph decided to forgive those who had wronged him. Let me tell you this. Until you learn to forgive those persons who created maybe a poor origin for you, you're never going to get past it. And I know, I, know, I know all of the things that are piling up in your head, all the excuses why. Well, they don't deserve it. They haven't asked it. They've done such horrible things. I, couldn't, I will never forgive them for this. I get it. But the Bible says this, and this is what Joseph had to learn. Forgiveness doesn't erase what they've done. Look at verse 4. I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into slavery. You sold into Egypt. It didn't erase the fact of what it did. In fact, he reminded them, I am Joseph. Now, he could have just said, I'm Joseph. They would have got the picture, right? I mean, there was only one Joe in the house. There's only one Joe. There was Hoss, and then there was little Joe. There was only one Joe, right? But he adds this little caveat there. I am Joseph, whom ye sold into Egypt. You see, forgiveness does not erase what was done. 
It didn't erase the fact that they sold them into slavery. It didn't erase the pain of these 20-some years of separation. It didn't erase any of it. But Joseph's choice to forgive them released him to experience the blessings that God has to fill in what they took away. But God can't fill that in when you fill that up with revenge and unforgiving spirit. He can't fill that in. It's already full. You have to empty that out through forgiveness and allow God to fill in what they took away. And God will do that. He's promised to do that. Second lesson that he learned is this. Forgiveness releases you to be able to do what God asks. The New Testament teaches us a pretty important lesson on forgiveness. In the book of Ephesians, chapter 4 and verse 32, it says, And be ye kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Now up to that point, it was like, all right, I'll be kind. I'll be tender. Forgive? I'll think about it. But then he adds this point. I'm to forgive you like God's forgiven me. Wow. What has God forgiven me for? Hmm. What has God forgiven me for? Everything I've ever done, everything I'm doing, and everything I ever will do. Isn't that the forgiveness that the Bible teaches Christian people? Isn't that the forgiveness that we understand? Isn't that the beauty of salvation that God wipes away all of my sin, right? Colossians says that he's, that he's blotting out the ordinance of handwriting against us and that he's taken all of my things that I've done wrong and he's nailed it to his cross. Isn't that what we teach? The Bible teaches that we're to do the same thing with our people that have wronged us. Easy? No. Doable? Yes. With the help of the Holy Spirit. Then the third idea of forgiveness is that he says here in verse 8, So now it was not you that sent me hither, but God. And he hath made me a father to Pharaoh, and a lord of all his house, and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. So did God force the ten brothers to throw them in a pit and sell them to the Ishmaelites so that Joseph would be there to save their tail when everything got... Is this some cosmic plan that we're in that we're just sort of like robots and we just, oh, okay, I'm going this. I want to go. Oh, can't go. You know, no. See, this is the lesson that every Christian needs to grasp. It's the verse that every Christian, that God has given to every Christian. I said this on Wednesday. God's verse, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, here's your verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that if you'll just believe in him, he will give you eternal life. That's the verse for you, John 3, 16. But the verse for Christians, Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. Do you believe that? That all things work together for good? What does that mean? It's not that God is the agent of the trouble. It's not that God is the causative action of the stress or the wrong behavior of others in your life. It's that when that free-willed person chooses to sin and you are feeling the effects of their free choice to sin, God says, I can take their wrong choice. And if you'll submit your life to me and you'll give yourself to me, I can make it work out for good because I've called you and I love you. Forgiveness allows you to see God work all things out for his good. So what about your origin? You still blame your parents? Still blame your spouse or your ex-spouse, your kids, your boss, your job, etc., for the reason that you continue to make bad decisions in your life? Look, the lesson from Joseph is that your past doesn't have to influence your future. You can choose a different future. That's the lesson of Joseph. Joseph had every reason to fail the test in Egypt. Every reason. Poor mom, poor dad, dysfunctional family, crazy lessons being taught through the life of the people that he saw. Yet, yet, what did he choose? He chose to follow the Lord. Isn't it time that we learn the lessons of Joseph's life? Refuse to allow your circumstances to be your identity. Choose to do right even when it's easier to do wrong. Forgive those who have wronged you. That's the first step in learning the lesson of what Joseph has to give to us. That's the first step. 
pray for you. Joseph sure had a dysfunctional family, but he made a choice to overcome that with some godly choices. Maybe you can identify with him today, and maybe you can take his advice. Here at Fearlessly Authentic Podcast, we don't ask for anything in return. All we ask for you to do is to share this and subscribe. Subscribe to this podcast so that you can hear it anytime that we put down a new episode, and also share this on your social media platforms so that other people can find out where they can find authentic truth in a fearlessly practical way. See you next time.